change this change the stand this week. You're already wondering each week what am I going to change this next week. So we're working on it. Another idea. If you see me over here doing this, it's not because I'm about to throw some dice or anything like that. My hands are, have just been uh, been cold this morning. My son Jordan, who lives in Nashville, um, he and I share a lot of a love for different types of books that uh, provide different insight, where the author is sort of taking a, a unique view or a different view on something we're fairly familiar with. And he introduced me to a book uh, just a few, couple of years ago, really, uh, written by John Mark Comer. Now, Comer was a, had started a church in Portland, and it just grew rapidly to the point where he was, it was a megachurch as uh, there are only a handful or a couple of dozen of those across the country. And he was very busy, and that church was growing. He wrote the book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Think about that. The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. In other words, our hurried schedules aren't something we can approach mildly and correct. He describes the ways to be absolutely ruthless in changing our patterns and our habits so that that we have a more balanced life. We've been talking about transitions the last couple of weeks, and we're continuing today, and, and there are transitions in lifestyle. There are transitions that happen in churches, both as we're undergoing right here with an, an interim situation, as well as the church as a whole, as things develop. Well, in the book, he describes one Sunday evening. He's leaning against his car. He had presented messages six times that day over the last 14 hours. He goes home and he's dead tired and he pops open a beer and he sits down to watch a Keanu Reeves movie just to try to escape. He said, I feel like a ghost. I'm half alive and half dead. I'm functioning at a manic speed and becoming unpleasant to everyone. Why am I in such a hurry to become somebody I don't even like? Isn't that a great question? Why am I trying so hard and hurrying so much to be someone that I don't even like? Well, he goes on and plays a little word game and kind of putting Jesus in the context of his world, of, of Comer's world. He said, can you imagine a stressed out Jesus one evening? And he looks at Mary Magdalene and said, you know, why did you drop the hummus? And sighs to himself, man, I need a glass of wine. Or he's talking to you and, and Jesus sitting there with his iPhone and half paying attention, uh-huh, looking down, continuing to type in the phone, half paying attention. Or he's very busy and he's aware of certain needs and he says, I'm sorry, I, I, I can't heal you today. I'm headed to Jerusalem uh, right now to give a TED Talk. <laughs> in the context of our world, that's the kind of hurriedness that we experience and Jesus, as real and human as we are, and yet uniquely God at the same time. I think often we, we don't ascribe enough human qualities to Jesus and experiences and emotions that are there. So he describes his transition, his decision to make a transition to this, from this megachurch to a small ministry and to balance out his life. So Comer moved from one thing to another, from one thing being a megachurch pastor to another, a smaller ministry and a balanced life. Transitions, as I mentioned a moment ago, also happen in churches. 
they happen when the, in the church at large. In March of uh, 2021, the Washington Post shared, had an article that talked about the development of new trends in American church life. And that the recent survey by the Gallup organization reported that less than 50% of Americans said that they were a member of any kind of church. When Gallup began that poll in 1937, the number was 73% of Americans claimed membership in a church. So membership has declined, but that doesn't necessarily mean that spirituality or interest in spiritual things has declined. There are two major trends among younger people, younger Americans. They're, they're disillusioned with institutions such as the police, healthcare, and even churches. Some of that's been brought on through some of the scandals in churches in, in the last decade or so with the Roman Catholic uh, sex scandals and all of those things that have happened. So they have begun mixing and matching up their own spiritual well-being and their own spiritual perspectives. They have a different relationship with both information and hierarchy. A different relationship with information. I was sharing the other day that one of the most dramatic things that I've noticed different about ministry today as it was when I was in full-time ministry 30 years ago is the internet is here. Thank goodness. Used to when we prepared messages, we had, it was either in our own library or we had to go to a library, take a couple of newspapers to subscribe. Our access was limited to information. So I even have, at my age, have a different relationship to information than I did in the past. And the younger Americans certainly have that. So the church is transitioning as a whole. Younger Americans have seen many Christians embrace political causes rather than stay committed and focused on traditional questions of morality. Today's the third week in our series looking at transitional figures in the Bible. The first week we looked at Caleb and the grasshoppers and understood how Caleb and Joshua had that God factor factored into their evaluation and perspective and that the God factor makes all the difference in our perspective, in our decision making, and the choices that we make. Last week we talked about Ruth and the Wheel of Fortune and how her life was in certain stages was over and over again determined by a wheel a spin of a wheel in somebody else's hands or even in her, home, in her own. So that wheel of fortune directs and changes the paths. Sometimes we don't see it coming. But nevertheless, we know that there's that community and connection that happens. That was the takeaway from Ruth's story. That, that connection and community providing a lifeline, providing courage and home. Today we're going to look at something that happened 1,300 years after the story of Ruth. We see here in uh, this map, this is a satellite image of Israel. And you can see, let's see if my, see Jerusalem right here. And you, you go down from the high, highlands all the way down 10 miles, and you're in a wasteland, all this wasteland. The only vegetation and everything is right here around the Jordan River. And that's where we find John the baptizer. 
I call him John the Baptizer, so I don't want to uh, insult Methodists and Presbyterians by calling him Baptist. But it's actually, uh, the truth is that the word baptizo in the Greek actually means immerse. So if we were going to translate the, the word baptizo, every time you see that in the scripture, it says you'll be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You'll be immersed in the name. That's a translation. But what happened was we transliterated the word baptizo, and we used that exact same word in English to mean what it means. So a transliteration is where you take a, a word in another language and use that same exact word in your own. So John the baptizer is in this area of the Jordan River. We're going to pick up the story in Matthew chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through a prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now this was a radical uh, claim. Because for hundreds and even thousands of years, you've got the Hebrew people who were waiting on God to bring the reclamation of his people and the world in the control of Messiah. And they've been going about their daily lives and their, their practices of their faith. And John is out there saying, the kingdom of heaven has come near. A radical attention getter, a radical statement to galvanize everybody's attention. You see, John at this point is in deep water of stirring the status quo, that deep water of, of changing things up and the undercurrent and the, the, the waves billowing and all of that happening because he starts stirring up the status quo and says the kingdom of heaven is come near. And waves of people begin to come out to see John. We find that the, John had a wardrobe that looked like a malfunction. Wore camel's hair, had a leather belt, and he was one of the first vegans I've ever uh, seen in the Bible. He was eating locusts and honey. Now, I don't know if locusts violate the vegan rules. We'll have to check into that, but I think it sounds like a pretty vegan meal to me. But he was, he was eating locusts and honey and living this way, and he, for, he was peculiar, and that caught people's attention, but he was also proclaiming some new things, some radical ideas. The Pharisees and the Sadducees saw what was going on, and all these people coming to, to see John, and, and they were, he was baptizing them, and they wanted to see what was happening as well. So they show up, and John has some words for them. You brood of vipers, what an opening. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the tree, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry." What John is saying to these Pharisees and Sadducees is God isn't dependent 
on his chosen people to accomplish God's purpose. That being chosen doesn't mean you're indispensable. You were chosen for a purpose, that purpose to produce good fruit. And he's claiming that the word of God and God is saying to the people, that's not what's going on here. And so again, John is stirring up the waters and and creating some unusual uh, circumstances for the people of God. They're hearing these new ideas and new thoughts. And I'm sure there was a lot of confusion among the Pharisees and Sadducees and the others. Author Brene Brown is one of my favorites, and she's uh, around speaker as well. And she writes the following. When the culture of any organization mandates that it is more important to protect the reputation of a system and those in power than it is to protect the basic human dignity of the individuals who serve that system or who are served by that system, you can be certain that the shame is systemic, the money is driving ethics, and the accountability is all but dead. Now, she wasn't speaking specifically about the Hebrew people in John's time. But as organizations, as an organized body of faithful people, they have become intent on protecting the status quo, protecting the way things were at that time, unreceptive to change, unreceptive to new ideas. Thus, John calls them a brood of vipers. And then we come to a defining moment in in this particular story. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Jesus coming is a defining moment for the people. And it's not going to be pleasant for some. There's going to be a separation of those who are truly following God and Christ and those who are not. So in a couple of statements here that John makes, he has totally caught the attention of the people. The kingdom of heaven is near, and what that means is this. Being chosen or not doesn't matter. God is not dependent on you to accomplish God's purpose. Jesus has come, and the kingdom of God has come near. Therefore, everything has changed. Jesus is presenting a defining moment for each of you. Well, the story goes on and we find that Jesus is immersed. And as soon as Jesus was immersed, he went out of the water. And at that moment, the heavens opened up and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove. And the voice from heaven, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. Now we know the story that that Jesus came to John and said, I I want to be baptized, and John resisted and said, no way. And Jesus said, no, this has to happen. Because it was stated in the Scriptures, and, and we're filling out, fulfilling the righteousness of God by doing this. So John does the immersion, and we see these things unfold. This is my Son, whom I love. With Him I am pleased. See, we see the stage being set here that that John the baptizer is demonstrating what it's like to navigate the deep waters of spiritual truths and spiritual change. Deep water of spiritual truths intersecting religious practice, not the shallow 
water of rituals and observances. There are some spiritual truths that were unfolding, and John was pointing to those, and they were intersecting the normal religious practices of the people. And that intersection is an important one, that we pay attention to it and that we are receptive of it. And that we don't cling to necessarily the rituals and observances that have become the habit of ours. Now, there are rituals and observances that are, of course, very meaningful. We have our own. Uh, we have rituals and observances that have been developed through the years, ever since the early church. You know, some of the rituals in the Roman Catholic Church were developed over time and weren't just all of a sudden established at one moment. There were Christians that, under persecution and threat of death, disavowed their faith so that they, they could save themselves and their family from death. But when the pressure died down and the political winds changed, some of them wanted to come back into the church. And so the church leaders were kind of torn with, what do we do? How do we affirm that they are truly believers? What can we do to, to make it a reality that they can be part of our church again? And so they established what ultimately became the sacraments, the saving rituals of the church. That if the person does this, if the person partakes of the Eucharist, and these seven different things they ended up with in that list of the Roman Catholics, those have saving power in the perception of the people. They're meaningful rituals and observances to realize the divine grace that God has and bestows on all of us. That's the real purpose and that's the real understanding that the Catholics have and others of us have about the rituals and observances. It's a recognition of God's divine grace. But over time, people began to even believe because they were required to come back into the church that those rituals and observances themselves had some saving power, independent of a faith in Christ. Well, those rituals and observances work until they don't. Just like lots of things. They work until they don't. They work to help connect us to a faith, but if that's all we're doing is the ritual and observances and nothing is deeper in that water of our own spiritual life, then at some point they won't work. They won't work for us. So we see John navigating this deep water of spiritual truths and describing and, and witnessing and, and laying out for us as, through his own actions how that intersects uh, the religious practice. You see, John, we see in him the, the process of from one thing, a place of separateness to another, intimately connected to faith. That place of separateness because even with the ritual and observance, I still have no connection to Jesus Christ. I still have no real understanding and appreciation for the mere presence and the powerful presence of God in my life. Those don't create that. Those don't make that happen. But we have this spiritual truth intersected, and then we find that we can be in, can intimately connected to our faith. We see in this story the deep water of spiritual insight, not the shallow water of surface beliefs. You know, that spiritual insight that comes when it's that aha moment. You say, oh, I get it. You know, there's some things that we know as facts. Gravity is a fact. We can make an observance that this Bible is laying on the stand. That's a fact. So we can know certain truths that are factual 
in nature. We can know a lot about God and Jesus Christ and the church and faith, and we can know many, many facts about that. But until we experience those things, they're not truly real in our lives. Until we, we experience them, we can't have that spiritual insight that we need to have and that we desire. That surface knowledge isn't enough. Factual knowledge isn't enough. I described the, my experience in, in biotech and, and healthcare and working with amazingly talented and gifted scientists over the years. And, and some of them were just astounding. Also in the way that they could explain simply to me what the science was. And so as we would raise money and, and for companies and try to pull some things together, there were times when I was presenting the scientific information at a surface level as part of a presentation without the scientists being present. I was fine explaining everything that they had explained to me. But the moment someone asked a question that went deeper than what I had been taught, I was totally unable to explain anything. You see those surface things. I knew it on a surface, but I didn't know it well enough to make a difference. I didn't know it well enough to create true insight into that science that the others were asking. And that's the way it is with spiritual truths. We need to experience life in Christ and life in our relationship with God so that we can have that spiritual insight. You know, we talk about, occasionally we'll talk about mystical things that are real in our faith and that, uh, that some things are a mystery, and yet we realize that, that God in Christ came so that the mystery would all be revealed. God is not in the business of keeping secrets and keeping mysteries that, that we can't understand and uncover. You know, something being mystical does not mean it's hidden. It's not necessarily mysterious. It doesn't mean it's hidden, because even a lamp in a dark place points the way. So that lamp in a dark place is some truth that we experience through Jesus Christ. And so we see when we navigate the water of spiritual insight, we move from one thing, accepting truths that are hidden on the surface, we just accept them, to another. Real knowledge, experiential knowledge of truth that we find in Jesus Christ. In this story, we also understand that there's a deep water of a dynamic faith, that not, not the shallow water of an inherited faith. Now, you may be like me. I, I grew up in the church, and from the time I was a baby, was in church every Sunday. My grandmothers both were very, very faithful, my parents on and off. But I was in, I was in the habit of being at church throughout my life. And so there were things that I inherited in my faith. I, I was Southern Baptist because they were, and that's where I started. And I, I, I just stayed in that process, in that, in that uh, denomination, for a long, long time. There were certain beliefs that I just inherited. It's not that I'd researched them and thought them through and really evaluated the different opportunities, the different questions, the different answers, the different ways to view things in, in my worldview. I inherited much of that. This, uh, this person on the screen is Jen Hatmaker. I don't know if any of you know her. She's also a well-respected uh, speaker and author. 
in a few, Jen Hatmaker in, has, was in a very conservative uh, practicing faith in church. And a number of years ago, she realized that her perspective of LGBTQ issues was an inherited perspective. She had defended it, she had written about it, she had opposed same-sex marriage and many other things that were oppressing that particular community. And so she decided that she would research this and study it and really look at what is in Scripture actually about these things and other smart people commenting on it. And she came to a place of realizing that she had condemned people and, and pointed her finger at people and taken a position that she could not find support for in Scripture and understood that she had inherited something that needed to change. It needs to be dynamic our faith needs to be something that can evolve and, and change with our own understanding and our own maturation in Christ. This is Beth Moore, one of the most respected Southern Baptist uh, leaders in recent years, in, in really probably a couple of dozen years. Last March, Beth Moore renounced her involvement with the Southern Baptist Convention. She renounced her support that she had historically had related to the misogynistic practices in churches, the way they structured who could do what, and limited the access to many of the activities, limited those uh, from women. And she, again, had supported those positions, had argued those positions, had argued the, the perspectives that had been preached and taught so many times from from a misogynistic perspective and promoted within congregations, and she disavowed all of that and left the Southern Baptist Convention in order to embrace the wholeness, in order to embrace that not only is that table open for everyone without exception, then everything in the church is open to everyone without exception. Think about that. This is the most sacred part of our experience as Christians is the table. And if we can claim, and we do claim, that it's open to everyone without exception, then what else should we withhold from anyone? A certain position, a certain role, a certain opportunity? We can't. How can we do that and do the opposite in other circumstances? So there are those people that have come to understand that faith is dynamic. It's ever-changing in some ways. Certainly the essentials, the core things are there, and they stay there. But the dynamics happen as our life experience changes and adds new information to the puzzles. Who can tell me who this is? Rudy, that's right. right. I started to get us to chant Rudy, but I thought that might be a little sacrilegious in the room here. Rudy Rudiger. Played for Notre Dame. And many of you remember the, uh, the story. You know, each year that he was on the team, on the practice squad, he got a letter jacket, a Notre Dame letter jacket, but he never played in the game. And then on November 8th, 1975, they were playing Georgia Tech, and he got in on the last play of the game and actually sacked the quarterback. And this is what his team did. They carried him off the field. You see, even though he had a letter jacket, He'd been a spectator on the sidelines. So he went from being a spectator to a player. He went from being someone watching 
to someone engaging. And in our faith, we need to move from being spectators to players. That's what the table is about as well. Everyone is invited to play. Everyone is invited to play in the game of life in our faith in Jesus Christ, without exception. There should be no spectators. Our mission as a church, our mission as God's people is to reach out and bring people from the sidelines into the game so that they understand and experience what it's like to know Jesus Christ and, and God's love for them. Each week, the table's open. Not just spectators, but players. So you go from one thing, being a spectator, to being a player in the game. You know, when we first find John in the wilderness, it had been 800 years since Isaiah's message about a voice of one calling in the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord. 800 years of waiting on God's promises, waiting to personally experience God's power, and waiting to know God's presence in a personal way through Jesus Christ. This is today's takeaway. Experiencing God's power and presence requires navigating the deep waters of spiritual truths and spiritual change, just as we saw John proclaiming. Amen.